Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Sullivan. On the program today, gun battles. All I can hope is that she's just not a number. Hopefully something gets resolved. That's all we ask. After a school massacre takes the lives of 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, will gun law reforms in the U.S. finally happen? And why did police fail to protect the children? We'll speak to the global human rights activist, Martin Luther King III. Then, Anglo attack. It's a matter of time before we lose uh, the, the presence of French in Quebec. We won't uh, eliminate the possibility uh, of, of joining uh, court challenges. Is Quebec's controversial Bill 96 to protect the French language an attack on minorities in that province? Will the federal government challenge it in court? The Attorney General and Justice Minister David Lametti joins us on that and on tomorrow's new firearms legislation. And then, big blue tent. The Conservative membership deadline is coming up this week. Who will sign up the most members and why has freedom become such a big theme in the race? The Conservative leadership candidate Roman Babber joins us on that. All that plus will count down to the Ontario election is Doug Ford headed towards another majority. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Hey, from the, from the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision. It was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. It was the wrong decision. As terrified children calling 911 from inside the class begged police to act, as frantic parents outside the school fought to get inside to help, a fatal, inexplicable decision by the Uvalde police to wait almost an hour before finally storming that classroom at the Robb Elementary School in Texas. Why did they wait so long? Well, 19 children and two teachers were gunned down. Even as the unfathomable grief suffocates any words, even as the debate about gun control is rekindled, anger at the police inaction has overtaken the community where U.S. President Joe Biden will be visiting today. And that is where CTV's Tom Walters joins us with the latest on the terrible situation. Tom. Evan, President Biden has a full day of events scheduled here in Uvalde, but the primary uh, activity will be his meeting with the families of the victims. This is uh, a tragic repetition of a scene we have seen before in this country, one more presidential visit to one more grieving town after a mass shooting. But Biden will find more than just grief here. He will also find anger over the revelation that uh, police delayed, delayed, and delayed uh, before taking action in defiance of the conventional wisdom among law enforcement, the, the active shooter doctrine that says that armed officers must act immediately to stop a shooter. Here, under the direction from uh, the chief of the tiny uh, Uvalde School District Police Department, uh, they waited more than an hour before engaging the gunman. Of course, the intractable issue of gun control uh, is raised once again by another tragedy. Uh, that point underscored by the juxtaposition of this shooting and uh, the NRA convention going on in Houston. Now, the debate itself is not a brand new thing, but what must be especially troubling to the families of the victims here is the repetition of the uh, of the slogan by, by politicians that uh, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That seems like a kind of grotesque bit of bumper sticker wisdom at a time when good guys with guns 
made an active and willful decision not to stop a bad guy with a gun. Evan? Okay, thanks, Tom. That's CTV's Tom Walters reporting from Uvalde, Texas. Now, if words fail to capture the scope of the tragedy, numbers at least can give it some perspective. Mass shootings in the U.S. have sharply risen in recent years, going from 269 in 2014 to more than 600 in 2020. And this year alone, there have already been 27 school shootings in the U.S. So could Uvalde be the moment stalled talks on gun control turn into action? Well, that didn't happen after the massacres in Columbine in 1999, in Sandy Hook in 2012, in Parkland, Florida in 2018. But right now, a bipartisan group of senators are holding talks to try and reach some kind of deal on gun safety, but it's unclear what they will actually accomplish. So what happens now? How can Americans heal? Let's find out. Joining me now, the global human rights activist Martin Luther King III. Sir, always good to have you on the program. Sadly, in another tragic circumstance, um, you watched, like everyone, what's happened in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, you all watched what happened in Buffalo um, just a couple weeks ago. Is America finally ready to add some gun safety laws or not? Will anything change? Well, I think um, the tragedy, in my judgment, is that um, Americans are ready. Uh, the vast majority of them, I am not certain that Congress is ready. Uh, certainly, the Democratic side has proven over and over again by passing legislation um, on a number of occasions, certainly right after March for Our Lives back in 218. Uh, and then, you know, the, the Democrats over a period of time passed a number of sweeping bills, but the Senate will not pass or thus far has not. I'm not able to say for sure if uh, they will. I don't, I personally am one who is always hopeful, but I honestly do not have a lot of hope uh, that the Senate will do anything. Uh, the Republicans are standing in the way they always do. It is very sad. I am not convinced what it takes to get people to move to action uh, when so many lives are consistently being lost by these horrific incidents. I thought, quite frankly, some years ago when Newtown, Connecticut occurred and 26 children were killed, right. that something was gonna happen. Uh, now we've had 10 persons in Buffalo a few weeks ago, and just a few days back, we had uh, 19 tragic children once again and two teachers, and yet, uh, the arguments continue to be made for more guns. We are a very sick nation, and no one is saying that or accepting that. But, uh, it, but sir, I've known well, Sir, sir, I just, I just think you say that. It's almost like there's two Americas. As, as Uvalde, the grieving is happening there. 280 miles away in Houston, Texas, the National Rifle Association is holding its annual um, convention um, and, and Donald Trump spoke there. Uh, the senator in Texas, Ted Cruz, said, you know who's to blame? He said fatherless children, video games. President Trump said 
that this proves more guns are needed, not less guns. He's even advocating arming teachers. What's your response to that? None of those are the correct solution. Um, it is a, it's a sad day, uh, even in my own state. Um, the governor passed legislation a few weeks ago in, in the state of Georgia so that you don't even have to have a registration. You're, anyone can get a gun and carry anywhere. Uh, that is going to be fatal for us at some point. And again, I, I don't want to be a naysayer or a negative person, but I do want to deal in truth. The answer, darkness cannot put out darkness. My father used to say only light can do that. I mean, the National Rifle Association has certainly can do what it wants to do, but it's tone deaf for President Trump to say we need more guns or Ted Cruz or anybody. More guns is not the solution. The question I have is similar to what President Biden said, and I thought about that long ago. Why is it that a country with 351, 350 million people uh, has all of these incidents, and yet countries that have over a billion people don't have the incidents at the same level the United States is doing? We've got to evaluate, to take a deep evaluation of what is going on. Part of the problem is, yes, there are too many guns and they're the wrong guns. There are no background checks. There are all kinds of things that could be done. Simple, reasonable, responsible gun legislation. But the gun manufacturers, along with uh, the National Rifle Association, which is so strong, are not willing to do anything, um, are not willing to encourage something positive, I should say. A bipartisan group of senators are meeting, they say, over the next few days to try to reach a deal. Maybe it's red flag laws or background checks that, you, that you've talked about. Us, many people don't have hope. And just, just before I let you go, sir, um, your own father, you mentioned Martin Luther King, assassinated more than 50 years ago. Uh, how do and you my grandmother, with... by the way, my grandmother in 1974. And your grandmother. So how do people deal with that? You've been fighting the, uh, the gun crime since your father. Um, how, how do you not fall into despair? Well, what I know is that, uh, you know, the, the, the race uh, is never given to the swift or the strong, but those who endure to the end. And that's what we have to do. We have to find a way to, to uh, hew out of a mountain of despair. My dad, despair, my dad used to say, we have to find a way to hew out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. And so I am hopeful. I am not optimistic about it happening, but I am hopeful and I'm gonna always be. And we're gonna keep on fighting. We're gonna keep on pushing. We will get legislation at some point. Um, and it's sad that all these incidents have to keep mm -hmm. happening uh, to hurt individuals. This is certainly something that can be addressed. It's just that the people in Congress and senators specifically in the republic on the republican side refuse to act um mm. i just believe at some point enough is going to be enough enough is enough for me when the first one happened but enough has got to be enough to ultimately get some action right 19 children two teachers when is it enough uh, martin luther king the third sir i appreciate you joining us uh, on this sunday morning thank you thank you for the opportunity all right, coming up, new gun laws in Canada. The new federal firearms legislation will be tabled tomorrow. What can you expect to see in it? 
And how will the federal government fight the controversial new language law in Quebec? The Attorney General and Justice Minister David Lametti is joining us next. Stay right here with Question Period. If we don't take action to protect French, it's a matter of time. Uh, it, it, Quebec becomes a bilingual state. It's a matter of time before we lose uh, the, the presence of French in Quebec. Protecting French. That's how Quebec justifies its sweeping new language law known as Bill 96. The law limits the use of English in courts and public services, allows the search and seizure without warrants for Quebec's language police if someone complains or snitches, and adds restrictions to English schools. Now, assuming their own law infringes on people's charter rights, the Quebec government is already preemptively using the controversial notwithstanding clause to overrule any charter challenge. Now, the federal government says it's prepared to get involved if the bill reaches the Supreme Court. But how would they do that? Meantime, the government just lost another key case in the Supreme Court over how long mass murderers will be ineligible for parole after the court ruled that the Quebec killer who murdered six people in that mosque in Quebec City will be eligible for parole now in 25 years, not in 40 years. So is there any recourse? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General of Canada, David Lametti. Minister, always good to have you on the program. Obviously, My pleasure. We, we have to talk about the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. 19 kids, uh, two teachers uh, gunned down. The Prime Minister here in Canada signaled that the Canadian government is moving ahead with new gun control measures, quote, in the coming weeks. Um, and, and so I know you can't preempt that. Um, but can you give us any sense of what is on the table, what your government is considering right now? Well, I, I would, I would point out that you know I am circumscribed in terms of what I can say. There is there is a notice uh, on the order paper for Monday, uh, my under the name of my colleague uh, Marco Mendicino, the Minister of Public Safety. So I, I'm certainly not going to preempt anything that 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 he's announced. I'd point you back to our platform, uh, and there are a number of different uh, there are a number of different measures that we uh, that we had signaled. Um, as well as what, uh, as well as what we had done uh, in the previous House of Commons, uh, old Bill uh, C21. So uh, there are a number of different measures that the, the Prime Minister has mentioned that that Minister Mendicino has mentioned in the in the in terms so, so of So I'm going to just enumerate campaign. them, sure. and you could tell me if they're following through on requiring owners of banned firearms to sell them back to the government or be destroyed or rendered inoperable. That's still on the table, right? Well, I'm going to I'm going to say a general answer, Evan, which is everything's still on the table. Again, I can't I can't preempt what what uh, what my colleague is going to announce according to the the order paper notice on Monday. On Friday, the Supreme Court ruled that Alex Bissonnette, the man who murdered six people in the Quebec City mosque in 2017, will be eligible per, for parole now after 25 years, overturning the Harper government amendment that allowed for consecutive periods of parole ineligibility, meaning for every first degree murder, a criminal could have a consecutive period of parole ineligibility, could go on for over 100 years. The court says that's unconstitutional. Do you think this is, do you agree that the court is right in this? Or does this devalue the death of each individual victim? Well, look, we, we first of all, uh, we all remember what happened, uh, the, the facts that, that were the basis for this case, which was the Quebec City shooting at, at the mosque, at the Grand Mosque in Quebec City. And, and certainly we know, uh, we know that those victims and their families are still living with uh, with that pain and that trauma, and we, we 
we keep that in mind. As Attorney General, I went to that. Uh, I, I defended uh, the discretion uh, that a judge would have under that, uh, under the law as it as it was currently stated, uh, to impose a penalty or not impose a penalty, uh, as as the case may be. Um, we obviously didn't win uh, at the Supreme Court. We haven't. Uh, we're, we're still analyzing the judgment uh, and 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 you know looking at. Uh, the various implications right. of it and the possible ways forward. But what are the possible? Like, what are the possible ways forward? Because someone who's a mass murderer, eligible for parole in in 25 years, there's going to be. We've seen this before. The agony for the victims will be terrible. So, what options do you have? Well, I certainly understand that agony. Uh, certainly understand the balance that that we have as a society uh, you know the courts the court's decision is is based on the, the concept of, of cruel and unusual punishment and and the protections under the charter section 12 so we've got to balance that in our society uh, we'll have to we'll have to see if, if there's a if there's a legislative option moving forward uh, we'll have to see uh, we'll have to see if if um, we need to make uh, we need to make changes to the criminal code. Um, we'll go back and we'll go back and look at this and uh, and and look at it carefully and see and see if there's a path forward. Let's get to another thorny issue: Bill 96, the new language law in Quebec. You're a Quebec MP. Um, let's get clear: they're using the notwithstanding clause, the Quebec government preemptively, as you know. Will your government challenge uh, Bill 96 in in court? Well, at this stage, I think we have to see how it plays out. Uh, I have announced uh, publicly, the Prime Minister has announced publicly that we will, uh, if the Bill 21 case in which uh, the, the notwithstanding clause was also used preemptively, um, if that reaches the Supreme Court after the Court of Appeal decision uh, that we're expecting uh, in the fall, uh, we will be there. It will be, uh, and, and we will make arguments on the preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause. Um, and I've stated, and the Prime Minister stated, our, our, our discomfort with it. Uh, I, have, I have added that the, the notwithstanding clause was meant to be used as the last word in a dialogue between legislatures and courts, giving the last word to legislatures. It's not meant to be the first word. Uh, when it's the first word, it preempts not just political debate, but also judicial review of, uh, of, the, of the actual provision. And it, it really guts the, the structure of the charter. Um, with respect to Bill 96, I think we have to wait and see how it plays out on the ground. There is um, there, there would be ways to implement uh, a number of the provisions in, in Bill 96, which wouldn't offend federal jurisdiction and wouldn't offend constitutional yeah. rights. Um, but again, we'll, we'll, see how it, we'll see how it plays out. Okay, just two things. Um, do you believe Quebec is abusing the, the spirit of the notwithstanding clause and in order to suppress rights of minorities, potentially? Well, for the time being, uh, there is a Supreme Court ruling that says it can be used in that fashion. Um, I would say that it's time that, that we review uh, that Supreme Court ruling. We ask the Supreme Court to take another look at it. In, in the case of Bill 21, when you're clearly concerned if it goes to the Supreme Court, the federal government will join, but you've already seen a, a teacher in Chelsea lose her job. By waiting to see how it will be imposed, are you essentially going to wait to see people who might be victimized by a snitch line that allows the language police to come in and search and seize their computer based on a complaint that they may be using an English-speaking software? Why not 
you see what they're clearly trying to do here. Why not already conclude that this is inherently um, overstepping the line of, of search and seizure without a warrant? Well, again, the, the, there is uh, a great margin of maneuver uh, to conduct, uh, to conduct searches uh, according to the Charter. Uh, we do that all the time in other areas of, of law and other areas of, uh, of regulation. And so uh, it, it is, it's always better not, uh, better as a, as a, as a uh, sort of legal practice to, to not speculate on hypothetical bo situations, but rather wait until, see how it works. I have said, I've been clear that the federal government will defend areas of federal jurisdiction and will defend charter rights. Uh, and, and I mean but, that. But, but the Quebec um, Premier Legault has said the federal government's and your plan to intervene already in Bill 21, the secularism law, is, quote, a flagrant lack of respect from Justin Trudeau toward Quebecers. You're a Quebecer. What's your response? To be perfectly honest, that's, that's an absurd response. It, it, there are challenges to federal jurisdiction by the provinces all the time. There are challenges to provincial jurisdiction by the federal government all the time. Premier Legault took us to court in the carbon pricing case. Uh, he went to the Supreme Court and lost. Premier Legault took us to court. Uh, he went directly to the Quebec Court of Appeal on the, the right of Indigenous peoples to take care of their own children, and he lost 5 nothing. So, so he's constantly challenging our legislation in court as saying it's an overreach. Uh, or yeah. it, it doesn't follow division of powers. Um, uh, we're just, we are just uh, testing the limits of a piece of legislation, whether, whether it infringes on the charter, or whether it infringes on federal jurisdiction. We've done that since the beginning of Confederation. The provinces have done it with us since the beginning of Confederation. We'll continue to do that. It's, it's a legitimate tool. It's not insulting to anybody. It's part of the process. We're elected Quebecers as well, and we represent Quebecers too. I, I got to leave it there. Obviously, um, there's a long road ahead on this. Attorney General, Justice Minister David Lametti, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. When we come back, Babbers' quest. Why does Conservative leadership candidate Roman Babber say he would fire Canada's top doctor, Theresa Tam? And is he pushing other candidates towards what he calls his freedom agenda? Roman Babber joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Membership, that is the only thing on the minds of Conservative leadership candidates this week. After all, Friday, June 3rd is the final day for candidates to sign up new members for that party. Which candidate has the most momentum and will membership signups actually translate into votes? Those are the key questions for everyone. But they are critically important for Roman Babber, maybe the least known of these six candidates. Babber was elected as an Ontario Progressive Conservative MPP back in 2018, but last year he was ejected from Doug Ford's caucus over his public criticism of pandemic restrictions. Babber's campaign is focused on fighting for what he calls freedom, the erosion of Canada's democracy. Recently he said if he was elected he would fire Canada's top doctor, Dr. Theresa Tam. He's also claimed that lockdowns are more deadly than COVID. So how does he justify all these claims and what does he stand for? Let's find out. Joining me now, Conservative leadership candidate Roman Babber. Good to have you back on the program, sir. Good to be with you. You recently said, I don't recognize my country, censorship, medical segregation, unlawful emergency declaration, and that you're running to defend the democracy from freedom. Um, I know your background. 
you look what's happening against in places like Ukraine. Um, what is the freedom that you believe is being so stolen? We have free elections, we have free courts, you have the free, free, freedom to protest. What's not free? What are you so worried about? Well, let's, let's just examine uh, a few of the propositions that I put forth. First of all, we have unprecedented censorship. We have three or four bills moving through Parliament in which the government seeks to abridge Canadians' freedom of speech. Um, I think that abridging speech is, is not just bad for democracy, it's bad for public policy. We see censorship on social media. Uh, something that uh, is entirely inexcusable. Uh, but what are you talking about exactly? Like, I, I, I just want to be clear. I don't sure. want to talk in generalities. Give us an example. Okay, so, for instance, we, we see multiple instances where our accounts get shadow banned or where content that Canadians shared gets flagged and their accounts are subsequently compromised. I had a speech of mine at Queen's Park, parliamentary speech, that, that had a warning uh, by Facebook, and, and we went to Facebook and and they've apologized and said that it was caught by a mistake and subsequently amended. Uh, Evan, I think that it's naive to believe that we don't have uh, an abridgment of speech on social media. Canadians have the right to be wrong. We have a very clear line, a sensible line, an appropriate line articulated in the criminal code, which is don't incite violence, don't demonize an, an identifiable group of people, something that in fact the, the, the prime minister does. Uh, but short of that, um, I don't understand why we should be abridging speech right. in, in a free parliament. But it's, I'm, I'm not arguing if you agree with the Liberals. You're a conservative. Of course, you're not going to agree with their view on it. But, but the picture that you paint is a country that's, uh, that there's no way to articulate your, your dissent. You can dissent. There are votes in parliament. We have these, we have these other um, ways for you to have checks and balances. What's wrong with that? Well, thankfully, we still have the ability to express ourselves and to vote in parliament. But that doesn't mean that we should not have friction on speech. The other thing I'd say to you, generally to the democracy point, close to 20% of Canadians are still treated like second-class citizens. It's not based in science. It makes no sense. We're the only country in the world that still discriminates against citizens or residents because of their medical status. And, and look, we've seen an unprecedented erosion of democracy. You're talking to me about a free right to protest. I'm not sure that we've seen a free right to protest. We didn't even see a free right what? to donate to a charitable oh, cause. I, I, but, sir, I, I, you don't sure. think that the trucker convoy was the free right to protest? There was three weeks right outside. The, I was there every day. They were protesting okay. every day. They parked their trucks on streets. They shut down streets. They shut down business for three weeks. How much more freedom do you want? That was as free as it gets. One minute. So there's civil recourse, right? There's highway legislation. There's municipal legislation. Uh, an Ottawa resident applied for a court order um, to stop the honking. And, and in fact, it stopped. The system worked. But it culminated in an unlawful de declaration of the Emergencies Act as successor to the War Measures Act. But you don't know, just to be clear, you're right, it was controversial. We don't know if it was unlawful yet. It, by law, they legally, well, they first that. of all, there was a vote in Parliament. Number, number one, there was a vote, so the majority voted for it. Second, by law, there's a judicial review, as you know, as you know and there's an inquiry into it. So, again, you're characterizing it as unlawful, but that's not true. Well, let's talk about that. So, first of all, the, the, the emergency legislation is clear that it should not be invoked if you have other means of, of dealing with the alleged right. emergency. And clearly there's other legislation available. Second of all, a province, uh, the, the responsibility first rests with the province. And if a province isn't able to, then it goes to the federal government. Not a single law enforcement agency asked for the tools that, that were made available right. to it by the emergency. But, but, but again, and, and again, you're, me, you're, but making, also, but, you're making me, arguments. We're also talking about attacking Canadians that were not in Ottawa. 
we're familiar with instances where, where, where people's bank accounts were frozen because they donated it to a charitable cause sure. that subsequently, retroactively, was deemed unlawful. But Mr. Babber, Mr. Babber, these are fair points, and, and we've debated them. I've, ha I've had the, the Minister of Public Safety, the Minister of Justice, on this program asking about all those things, as has the opposition. Democracy, this is, these are f legitimate questions about the exercise of, civil, uh, of right. infringement on civil liberties. That's happening. But your campaign has been dominated by your views of the pandemic. Not, it's not the only thing. That's why you were kicked out of the Doug Ford Progressive Conservative Party. Uh, you want to become the Prime Minister, and you said if you do, you'll fire Canada's top doctor, Dr. Theresa Tam. Under what grounds would you, an elected official with no, no medical knowledge, fire the appointed Chief Public Health Officer? So, the pandemic response was an abject failure. We're seeing that the pandemic response has caused considerable harm to Canadians, whether it's their surgeries cancelled, or cancer screenings missed. And instead of focusing protection on uh, vulnerable populations, protecting and investing in long-term care homes where 80% of the risk was, we have now created a mental health pandemic. We, uh, Canada's healthcare is on the ropes. We are unable to catch up with the 800,000 or so surgeries uh, and, and procedures that were canceled during the pandemic. Uh, I think that there's nothing wrong with demanding accountability, but I want to come back to the democracy point. No, no, hold on, hold on. I think don't don't skip this. This is this was this animated your political career, sir. There are forty thousand seven hundred and ninety-nine people who lost their lives to COVID nineteen. More than thirteen thousand since January twenty twenty in Ontario alone. I know you have alleged that there's a mental health and a suicide crisis, but back in 2021, when you were an MPP in the Ford, you wrote saying that the lockdown is deadlier than COVID. But you know sure. that's patently false, sir. I'm not trying to diminish yeah. the mental health crisis, but you are okay, diminishing well, you like the COVID crisis. It's good that we're relitigating the interview from last time. We have a very live race here on equalization, on supply management, on foreign affairs. You want to relitigate lockdowns? I'm content to do so. First of all, we need to adjust our numbers because we haven't differentiated that those that died due to COVID and from COVID. Second of all, it's not clear that there was any efficacy to lockdowns in preventing those deaths. It's not about who gets, it's not about how many people get COVID. It's about who gets COVID because we know that the disease is very uh, transmissible and stoppage arresting the spread is very, very difficult, especially when you open up. What we should have been doing is we should have been staffing long-term care homes and congregate settings where most of the risk was. We should have been forefront about the fact that metabolic conditions are something that increases the risk. Instead of locking down healthy children and potentially making them sick. The deadline's coming up, June 3rd to sign up members. Are you confident in your membership signups? Can you give us a sense of where you're going to end up or are you hoping to um, be viable or are you hoping to lend your support to someone else? Look, um, when when we first met, you're, you're asking, you, you questioned my raison d'etre in this race to begin with, and uh, and I think we've run a pretty good race thus far. My application was approved. We raised the 300000 plus the administrative fee necessary to get in the race. Uh, we have the lowest average donation size of all campaigns, uh, 10 times less, in fact, than some of my competitors, according to Q1 figures. Um, we are a truly grassroots movement. Um, I think we're overperformed and have exceeded expectations in the first two debates. And, and most importantly, um, we're not just talking about uh, COVID or a pandemic response. We have legitimate discussion about Canada's democracy and, and where we're headed. And uh, unlike media speculation that suggested that we're going to be uh, containing our, our race to lockdowns and, and COVID and, and freedom, it's in fact the other candidates that are coming closer to our, to our way of thinking and saying, yes, we need to think about democracy. We need to think about freedom. So I like the fact that myself and my supporters and my team 
are helping to shape the future of the Conservative Party of Canada. All right, I got to leave it there. Roman Weber, always good to have you on the show. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Evan. Okay, still to come, countdown to the Ontario election. Is Doug Ford on his way to another majority? What about the Liberals and the NDP? Well, pollster Nick Manos joins us next on The Scrum to break it all down in this critical week. Stay right here with Question Period. So if the Ontario election was a final exam, it would now be cram time for the candidates. The provincial election is just days away. It happens this Thursday, June 2nd. The big question, will Ontarians give Doug Ford and his PC party another majority government? Now, I don't want you to peek at the answer sheet, but the polls say he's heading for another win. And what about the NDP and the Liberals? Can they shift position or can they have a surprise outcome? And what are the issues driving the campaign? To talk about that, the Scrum is here. Joyce Napier, our CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief, is here. Marika Walsh, a political reporter with the Globe and Mail, is here. And our special guest is Nick Nanos of Nanos Research, who's been cracking into the numbers. Good morning, everyone. Okay, this is a big week in politics. Uh, Nick, let's look at the Ontario election. Uh, tell us what the numbers are telling you and tell us why they're saying this. What's going on in Ontario? Well, right now, the latest CTV News CP24 survey has the progressive conservatives at 37, nine points up ahead of the Liberals at 28, NDP 23, Green Party at six. What does this mean? If there were an election held at this particular point in time, as we get close to election day, we're looking at a conservative win, likely the probability of a conservative majority win. It might not be as strong as before, but right now it looks like Doug Ford, cruise control. He hasn't made a mistake. No one's made a mistake. It's almost kind of like Groundhog Day. Another conservative, potential conservative, progressive conservative win in the election. Okay, Marika, it's fascinating, right? Because for the first two years, he was so polarizing and so had such a difficult uh, time. And then all of a sudden now, uh, the polls are showing that he's kind of coalescing. What's, what issues have defined or shaped this race? Well, I, I think not much has defined or shaped this race, and that's part of the reason why Doug Ford is appearing, as Nick just said, to be cruising to another victory. He was able to use the COVID pandemic to completely reshape his brand, completely reshape his government, and, and the chaos and controversy of the first two years of Doug Ford's government is so well in the rearview mirror that it's not it's not factoring into the electorate's vote and at the same time neither of the opposition leaders the main opposition leaders has really been able to lay a glove on him mm -hmm. in any meaningful way or change the narrative in any meaningful way well I, I don't Joyce I mean we all cover politics this is the baffling thing gas prices yeah. two bucks a liter you think okay blame the incumbent housing prices up didn't have a great necessary run on COVID. It's not like things are going gangbusters, and yet uh, Doug Ford seems to be, all that just drops off of him, the, the Teflon yeah. uh, candidate. It doesn't stick to him, but you know, the thing is interesting is that he has made mistakes, but he has surprised us all because he actually is a very astute politician if this is what is going on. Um, Ontarians, and we are all Ontario voters, or a French expression is buff, means B-O-F, 
ah, you know, nobody is voting against anything. So there isn't that kind of passion when you're voting against. You want this guy out of the way. Nobody really wants him out of the way. So, so affordability is the issue um, in this, what to coin Joyce's phrase, the buffless campaign. I don't understand this. <laughs> but, but Nick, um, I, these are technical terms we're learning now on, on the show in, in real time. But, but what about Andrea Horvath? She's, this is her fourth campaign. The NDP, they couldn't seem to, can't seem to capitalize on the affordability issue. What about the Liberals? Are, are they making a comeback? What are you seeing? Well, 2018 was a blockbuster campaign for Andrea Horvath and the New Democrats, right? They were the official opposition. They got 34% support. Now they're at 23. And uh, it seems that she has not been able to generate that same type of spark and excitement that she did in 2018. And, you know, for Del Duca, the reality is, I think for those that are voting liberal, it's because they want to vote liberal, not necessarily because they're supporting Del Duca. And it looks like, it looks like for the two challenging parties, right, the liberals and the New Democrats, they've been running safe campaigns. Usually the front runner runs the safe campaigns and the challengers take risks in order to derail the front running campaign. But I think all the leaders have been sleepwalking through this whole provincial election. And uh, as a result, we haven't really seen a lot of numbers move. Okay, uh, Marika, some, by the way, numbers sometimes move in campaigns right at the end. And there's we've still all, time. There's yeah, still we, time. we've <laughs> always seen the late break in campaign, but we'll see. But. If, if federal parties are watching this, I'm going to put this to you and Joyce. What lessons do federal parties take from what's going on in Ontario, Marika? Well, first of all, I, I think the absence of federal parties in this provincial campaign is very notable. Evan, Justin Trudeau voted this past week in advance polls and didn't mention Stephen Del Duca or the Ontario Liberal Party. He has not made an appearance with them. And his last appearance was with Doug Ford. So. You know, I, I think wow. the federal liberals seem pretty comfortable with what is happening in Ontario right now. They're not. I also think there's a bit of a different framing I would give to what Nick just said about the leader sleepwalking through. I think Doug Ford has led a very buttoned down and scripted intentionally so campaign. One of the conservatives I spoke with before the campaign said they want a boring campaign. Well, they got it. That's what they want when you're the incumbent. And it was on the opposition parties to make it not boring and they were not so far able to do so with, you know, four or five days left. Yeah. See, Marika and uh, uh, Nick are making my point. It was a buff campaign. Right. Buck, you know, okay, fine. Nobody, no, there was no, you know, fireworks. There was no insults. And he was practical. He did what he had to do. He, you know, had an alliance practically with the federal liberals, right? right? Photo ops with them. They loved each other. They practically had a love in. And, and he's a conservative and they're liberals. So he was very pragmatic and very, it's a very smart campaign. Just, you know, walk through it and don't break anything. Okay, got to leave it there. Uh, Nick Nanos, thanks for joining us. I know you'll be following the election campaign. Joyce and Marika, please stick around because if you're looking for where's the buff, it's probably in the conservative leadership race. And the clock is ticking, as hopefuls have until this Friday, to sign up new members. Did the final debate give any candidate an advantage? The former conservative cabinet minister and candidate, Peter McKay, joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period.
French face-off and the future of the Conservative Party. The Conservative leadership hopefuls went head-to-head -head in Laval this past week for their first and only French-language debate. And while they tackled campaign big issues like affordability, inflation, foreign policy, the support of the trucker protest, they also waded into new topics, Quebec's highly contentious Bill 21, the equally new contentious Bill 96. But the key deadline is ahead. It's the membership sale deadline, and that is the key moment. That is the June 3rd deadline. How will candidates sign up members, and what is this debate so far saying about the Conservative Party? Is there a fight for the soul of the party? To talk about that, the Scrum is back. Joyce Napier, our CTV Ottawa News Bureau Chief is here. Marika Walsh, the political reporter for the Globe and Mail is back. And our special guest this round is a guy who knows a thing or two about Conservative politics, the former Conservative Cabinet Minister, uh, and leadership candidate Peter McKay. Okay, uh, Peter, great to have you joining our scrum today. Um, you've been watching these debates. You've been watching this unfold. Um, is this a different conservative uh, party dynamic you're seeing? What, give me your, your sense. Is this a battle for the soul of the party? Well, it seems, Evan, I guess not to be alarmist because we've, we've seen this before. We've actually seen much worse, quite frankly, when there was a, a real schism and a split in the party after the 93 election, the, the corporate downsizing of conservatives, if you will. And uh, so I, I believe it can be pulled back together and, and winning has a lot to do with that. I, I think if, uh, if we can move away from some of the angry rhetoric and get back to authentic ideas and debate that has impact on Canadians' lives, you know, the cost of everything and, and what's happening internationally and all around us and emerging from this pandemic with uh, high inflation and interest rates. That's really the essence of, of what should be in the wheelhouse of Conservatives in terms of policy. But the attacks on one another and, and getting really personal is off-putting and, quite frankly, will hinder the new leader, whoever that may be, in, in unifying the party in a way that can present itself to the country in a general election whenever that comes. It looks like it's two, 2025 at this stage. Joyce, I, I mean, Peter McKay's talking about get, getting back to unity. We have ne I've never seen a, a more disunited party. Um, Jean Charest calls Pierre Polyever a guy who traffics in conspiracy theories. Pierre Polyever calls him a liberal. It doesn't even belong in the party. Um, what's your sense watching both debates as you did in terms of what this is saying about the party or the ideas animating it? Again, look, I know I'm repeating myself, but I don't think this is one party. Uh, I don't hear this being one party. You've got one peddling anger, and it works, right? It worked for Donald Trump, and it's working for Pierre Poilier. The country has gone to the birds. Everything is terrible. The gatekeepers, the Bank of Canada, let's wait for him to do that to the Supreme Court of Canada or every other, any other institution, and it works. So, but, it, but it's taking the party to a place where even the backroom boys and girls are, of the party are now saying, we really want to win, ladies and gentlemen who are running. Right. And right now, this is not a winning party. If you're going to tear yourselves, each other apart, and tear this party apart because that's what they are doing, it's not one party, it's two parties. And as long as they're not united, they're not going to win. Okay, there's practical side. That, the big picture that Joyce is describing, Marika, is going on, but then there's, the, they just got to, this is the moment where you got to just sign up members, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what will, why is June 3rd so important? And when we finally find out who's uh, signed up, who, the, basically when we lift up the hood, what are we going to see? 
Yeah, I think to Joyce's point, I think that's actually what they are doing right now. They're deciding on the soul of the party. They're, they're deciding which direction they want to go. And, and they are, in part, electing the person they believe will be most likely to successfully challenge in the next federal election. That's what they're doing. And as you said, June 3rd, the big step to being successful at that is this membership deadline, is how many new members you are signing up. And as Stephanie Levitz has reported, it's a sky-high number, as much as 400,000 new members, or right. sorry, total members are expected. And that is so important, Evan, because it leads to, can you win on the first ballot? And then if you're not winning on the first ballot, what is the strategy? Right. How are you winning supporters from people who drop off the subsequent ballots in order to actually have a coalition, a path to victory? And I think it's really important to remember that in the last two campaigns, the front runner was not successful. And they were tight elections, and they were tight races, and that really speaks to why right. The sign-up matters, but also they did not have high voter turnout. And so that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win if you have all those members, but it's a key to it. Yeah, Peter McKay, you know all about that. Peter McKay, as that race is going on, I'd love you to weigh in on maybe lessons learned. Because look at uh, Jason Kenney uh, in Alberta. He's now he's stepping down in this long quit that he's got going on. But he wasn't conservative enough, apparently, for many members of his own party, and he lost power. Uh, is there a message to federal conservatives there? Well, yeah, I think both, uh, both previous speakers touched on really important points about being pragmatic and thinking ahead. You're, you're not just running to be the leader of, uh, of the, progressive, or the conservative party. You're, you're leading, uh, you're putting yourself forward to lead the country. I think they have to step back a little bit from this uncivilized uh, attacking of one another and marginalizing certain members uh, versus others. Because three things happen in, in that scenario. Number one, you say to the public, well, we're not really ready for prime time because we're not united and we're, we're at each other's throats. Secondly, you, you give them fodder to use against you or ammunition in the next campaign, as, as we did. As conservatives, we use debate uh, attacks from, from Stephen Dion and, and uh, Michael Ignatieff and others in the next general. And most importantly, when you bomb bridges and scorch the earth of, uh, of candidates in the campaign, you, you not only diminish and demoralize them, but all of their supporters as well. So very difficult to walk them back into the big blue tent afterwards and say, we're all one big happy team. Okay. I have to leave it there, and we'll find out how large this large blue tent ends up being in the end. Uh, i got to thank uh, Peter McKay, Marika Walsh, and Choice Napier, uh, all three of you. That is question period for this week. It's been a very tough past week for many people around the world, especially our hearts go out to those people in Uvalde, Texas, who have lost so many loved ones. Hug your loved ones is what we always say. It is a precious commodity. We will be back here in seven short days.